0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Eric Foner about the use and abuse of American history. Your new book, Eric, is a collection of 27 essays written over the course of the last 40 years. It comes with the title, Battles for Freedom. And maybe you can begin by telling us what our contentious arguments about the American past have to do with freedom. Freedom for whom? Freedom to do what?
1: Well, those are some of the key questions, exactly. I mean, um, those essays, as you say, were written over 40 years. They all appeared in the Nation magazine, which I have contributed to a lot, and I'm on the editorial board. So, you know, they they are addressed to the readers of the Nation and to everybody else who wants to read them. But as to freedom, if you uh, take a look at the titles of uh, the books I have written over the course of my career, you discover that the words free and freedom and liberty are in the title of almost all of them. My first book was called Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. Nothing But Freedom was a book, uh, Give Me Liberty is a U.S. history textbook I wrote, The Story of American Freedom, Gateway to Freedom. In other words, this idea is definitely on my mind. And what the reason is twofold. One, it is central to American political culture, political discourse. People wear the land of the free and the home of the brave, supposedly. Uh, we have a Statue of Liberty. I mean, this is, you know, freedom uh, is the, the securing the blessings of liberty is what the Constitution is supposed to be all about. Many of our wars were fought in the name of freedom, a new birth of freedom in the Civil War, the four freedoms of World War Two, And, of course, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. We remember that one. Uh, well, I guess it's vaguely still going on. Anyway, uh but the, my point really is that it is exactly battles over freedom. In other words, it is freedom is not a fixed idea, it's not a single concept. It's constantly being debated uh, the whole question of the boundaries of freedom, who's entitled to it, you know, we have throughout American history many groups have been denied access to freedom uh either altogether like slaves or in a uh, you know part they've only enjoyed it in a part way such as african-americans more recently or women in much of our history so uh, i'm interested in those debates i'm interested in those conflicts my argument is that the expansion of freedom both to new groups and the expansion of the concept itself into areas that it wasn't applied to earlier on uh, often is the result of the struggles of these excluded people to um, enjoy freedom as they understand it. So I think uh, using freedom as a kind of through line to American history, but a through line of of debate and contest, not just a a single linear idea, uh, I think does enable you to look at a lot of different aspects of American history in kind of new and interesting ways. What is an abuse
0: of history? In other words, an attempt to suppress people's a capacity to think for themselves, to put in their minds with with, with an official doctrine or dogma
1: well that's a lot of what i think the abuse i'm interested in the abuses of history by those in power by the government i mean we have nowadays this seems to be happening every single day when high officials make pronouncements about history about the causes of the civil war or about robert e lee or whatever it is you know often nowadays based purely on ignorance or lack of understanding of history uh, but I'm interested in how freedom is used as a rallying cry, how, how different powerful groups try to kind of take control, you might say, of the concept of freedom for their own purposes. I mentioned before how freedom is used frequently to mobilize support for war. You know, it's interesting that uh, President Obama, uh, in his eight years in office, did not talk about freedom very much. Uh, President George W. Bush, his predecessor, talked about freedom all the time. That was his main argument for the war on terrorism, the war in Iraq, you know, they hate us because we're free, uh, they're a threat to our freedom, etc., etc., etc.
0: But that wasn't that wasn't true.
1: No, it was ridiculous. That's what I talk about the abuses of freedom. You know, when it, you can start with Osama bin Laden, you know, the late Osama bin Laden. Two days after the um, attack on 9-11, uh, Bush went before Congress, you remember this, gave a big fiery speech, And uh, he said, you know, why did they attack America? Because they hate our freedom. They hate us because we're free. You know, at that time, this is going on 15 years ago or so, I got interested, I wrote a lot about the, the uses of freedom in this concept of a worldwide battle against terrorism. And I actually wrote to a guy who had translated the writings of Osama bin Laden and published them in the U.S. Just what is it? And I said, is that true? Is Osama bin Laden going on about American freedom? He wrote back, no, Osama bin Laden doesn't care about American freedom. That's ridiculous. That's not what's on his mind. He never says anything about that. He's interested in our support for Saudi Arabia, which alarms him. He's interested in, uh, this is not to defend Osama bin Laden, obviously, but to say that the use of, his, of, of uh, freedom as a rallying cry for war uh, it leads you to uh, go down some very strange paths in terms of actual history. But as I was saying, Obama did not use the idea of free. He didn't speak about freedom. He spoke about community. He spoke about fraternity. He spoke about equality. The only time he really spoke about freedom, typically, was when he was... Um, gearing up the war in Afghanistan and went on, you know, TV to talk about sending more troops in this surge and whatever that was into Afghanistan, continuing our presence there for a while. And he said, this is about freedom. But uh, that was ridiculous. Uh, It had nothing to do with freedom. And, uh, you know, Obama sort of seemed to realize that because he never really talked about freedom very much. So it's kind of interesting how the use of the Concept of freedom. The word freedom ebbs and flows in American history.
0: Well, also, how does it connect with political correctness? In other words, political correctness is an attempt, I assume, or an obligation to say what one is expected to say and and not to uh, dissent or not to uh, have an idea of one's own. I mean, freedom is also about having an idea of one's own, right?
1: entirely by the way i don't like the term political correctness i think it is widely abused it becomes a uh just a catchphrase for ideas one doesn't like the right wing has picked it up and they accuse people on the left of political correctness but you know the right is equally guilty of what you might call patriotic correctness you know that they are ready to abuse anybody who steps out of line from their point of view and isn't quite patriotic enough um the extent that political correctness does exist, and as I say, it's considerably exaggerated in my opinion. Yes, of course, it, you're right. It um, represents a suppression of uh, free inquiry and free freedom of speech in a way that people feel obligated to say certain things and not to say other things. And that I, is a dangerous, um, you know, situation in a democracy. But as I say, the um, the disease is uh, considerably exaggerated by people who just use that exaggeration as a club to beat liberal and left-wing people over the head with talk about the idea of what
0: you mean by the phrase a usable past
1: yeah uh, you know
0: you say it's a more sophisticated and complicated view of american history than the ones peddled by politicians or by hollywood i mean what, what, what is a usable past, and, and and why is that different than from propaganda?
1: Well, you know, as I said, these articles were all written for The Nation magazine. They were written when, you know, and I've written many scholarly books and articles. And when you're writing for different audiences, you have to just sort of remember what hat you're wearing. You know, when I write in The Nation, these articles are addressed to an audience outside the academy. They're not footnoted. They're not uh, going into obscure scholarly debates. You know, they are they're written in a more a, a clearer way, I hope, and a way that I, not it doesn't it's not propaganda in the sense. I don't ma- manipulate history. I try to give good history. I'm not trying to warp history so it can be usable in the present, but I do want to help people make connections between the present and the past and see where our current uh, malaise and situation in the society comes from in our history, but also to provide a history that is usable in the sense that it can inspire people. I think learning about some of the great struggles in American history, the abolitionists and their movement against slavery, the labor movement, uh, women's rights movement, learning about great figures like Frederick Douglass and Eugene V. Debs and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and you know, Malcolm X, and you can name them, can be an inspiration. That doesn't mean these are all uh, pure heroes. I'm not trying to gloss over faults that they may have had. But too often, our history is a kind of bland, middle-of-the-road history. And I like to present people with uh, the radicals, the the people who struggled to make this a better society and how they succeeded to some extent. They There's still a long way to go. So a, you, a usable past is a past that can inspire people to do good things in the present.
0: Well, the past, I mean, G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said that the history is the fund of energy and hope that makes possible the revolt against what Chesterton called the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. (laughs) But I assume that's exactly what you mean.
1: Uh, well, he put it a little better, maybe, or certainly in a more uh, uh, interesting way. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, here's another way of putting it. Um, Nietzsche, the philosopher, distinguished three modes of writing of history. There's the antiquarian, which is what a lot of people do. You know, it's searching, going on Ancestry.com and searching for your forebears or sending your blood sample or something to somewhere and getting a DNA readout, you know. Uh, All right, that's antiquarian. It's not really history, but it gets people interested in the past. Then he said there's monumental history. That's mostly what history is. It's history that glorifies the nation state, that talks about great leaders, monumental in the sense of elevating in, you know, the leaders of our past history to uh, exalted status. And then there's what he called critical history, critical history. How did he describe that? The history that judges and condemns. I thought that was an interesting phrase, history that judges and condemns. And to my mind, it's also the history that judges and praises people. I'm not running around the past saying, here's a good guy, and here's a bad guy, and here's a good woman, and here's a bad woman. But I do think we do have an obligation to judge the past, judge where we have come from, who were the people who were trying to make this a better society, and who were the people who were standing in the way of that. And I think a, a, a critical history in Nietzsche's sense does enable people to think about ways of changing society in the present and the future.
0: Well, it's also the way that Roman historian Livy, I mean, he talks about history as models of good things to imitate and bad things to avoid i mean i mean it's it's we are learning about man's humanity and inhumanity to men i mean i mean it it is our consciousness
1: history is what separates us from the animals yeah (laughs) they don't have a sense of their own history i don't believe but
0: it's full of, of of possibility and it's inexhaustible and and generative if it's approached with some degree of uh,
1: right. But you know, as I say, writing for the nation. When I talk about a usable past, that's a political concept. I'm talking about an understanding of history that can help people in their struggles in the present. That is one way of writing history. That's not exactly what I do when I'm writing a you no, know. No, I understand that. I monograph. no. No, I, I mean, I'm still interested in the same subjects about freedom, about race, about labor conflict, about, you know, who has who, somebody said, you know, who rides whom? That's the basic problem of, of studying history, figuring out who rides whom. Well, I mean, it's, and,
0: you know, it's also it's Orwell. I mean, who controls mm-hmm. the past controls the future, who controls the present
1: controls the past. And he's, yeah, and he, the problem in our society today is uh, more uh, ignorance of the past than controlling it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, a, a kind of amnesia, uh, at least at the upper echelons of our uh, political establishment.
0: Why uh, Why is that?
1: Uh, I think that's just the people we happen to have put into power in a fit of madness a year ago. They have no intellectual uh, capacity, they have no interest in anything except money and uh power and uh they you know they don't i mean the president uh, i he's actually written books i to say people have written books for him uh, with his name on it but i don't believe he's ever read a book and i certainly would not imagine him picking up a work of history to try to find out what happened so he just talks about the first thing that pops into his head and then you get others like general kelly and others who put out whatever their current you know mythology of history is um, but the ing- but that's, but- You know, we live in an anti intellectual age, let's put it that way. We, are a, we have an anti intellectual government. We live in an anti intellectual age, and therefore uh, the interest in history is uh, diminished by that.
0: But I mean, the, the people in the Bush administration were as deeply ignorant of history as, as uh, Trump. Uh, Maybe
1: not quite as ignorant as Trump, but uh, that's a very high standard to try to achieve. But yeah, hey, let's go back to Vietnam. Yeah, The people, the best and the brightest, what did they know about Vietnam? What did they know about the history of Vietnam, the culture, the society? they all thought Vietnam was a puppet of China, which is complete you know, couldn't be more untrue if you look back at a thousand years of Vietnamese history, you know. So, yeah, uh, I, I'm not, you know, yes, lack of knowledge of history is not confined to one president, one, in, one administration, one moment in time. But that's what I try to do in my writings, you know, kind of connect in these writings to connect the, what's going on in the present with some some concept of history so for example you know one of the articles in there was written right after this fellow dylan roof killed you know several people in a south carolina church a few years ago as you remember and he had issued this manifesto on uh, video and also talked to people about his views And, uh, you know, I try to say, well, where does this come from? Where does this guy's racism come from? It's not just out of the blue. It's deeply embedded in the history of South Carolina. And, um, you know, I try to trace out where those ideas of his crazy as they were came from and how they are not just one mad person. They are part of the history of South Carolina. So I think one, you know, that's trying to link the present and the past in a way that illuminates the present perhaps a little more than otherwise. I think that's imperative.
0: I mean, and the people who say uh, uh, historians like yourself who tend to look at some of the uglier passages of American history as uh, doing damage to the um, the American dream, but but that's not true. I mean, I mean, what is what, what is the harm in learning that the um, the history of the American people is full of flaws, just like Everything else in the world, right
1: yeah it, 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 you know i don't I, I don't feel that my that what I'm doing when I write history is just say, Oh look, this is bad this no, is you better. don't
0: no i, I don't we think add, you do either
1: yeah, no, I know we had slavery, look how bad I'm actually more interested in a i am a, an optimist, I look at people who try who struggle to make to get rid of slavery, to gain rights for black people, to gain rights for women. That's the dynamic of history that I'm interested in, and uh, I think they're worthy of tremendous praise. You know, I'm not just condemning our history. Look at these people. Frederick Douglass, how could you, you know, not think this is a great man of history? Uh, Eugene B. Debs, I mean, you know, you talk about these people. These are, these are the Americans we ought to be celebrating. Unfortunately, uh, in uh, many of our schoolrooms and textbooks, you don't hear a lot about them. No, and you,
0: you, you have a very interesting essay dated 1999, where what you call our monumental mistakes," and right. which you're talking about our public history, the statues we put up all across this country uh, attend to the monumental and, and, and to the you know the, the generals and, and power, not, not, yeah. not to liberty. I mean, I mean, where's the statue of of Thomas Paine?
1: Absolutely. There is one in New Rochelle, but there's been an effort for many years to get one in Washington, D.C., which they will not allow because he uh, criticized the revealed truth of the Bible and things like that. Um, No, look at the South. You know, there's all this controversy now, and it goes back, as you said, that article was written almost 20 years ago. About Confederate monuments. I'm, I'm not saying, hey, I don't care. I'm not saying take down all the Confederate monuments, but let's put up some other ones. Where's the monument of Hiram Revels and Blanche K. Bruce, the first two black members of the U.S. Senate during Reconstruction? Where's the monument to the black congressman of Reconstruction? In other words, you know, there's a whole other Southern history.
0: Yeah, where's the monument of, of uh, Frederick Douglass?
1: Well, yeah, not in the South. I mean, there is now something in Maryland around in the eastern shore of Douglas around the time of his the place of his birth. Douglas has become more assimilated now into a general, you know, um, uh, view of American history than many of these black reconstruction leaders or labor leaders Where, you know, where's the statue of Eugene V. Debs? I keep coming back to him. Maybe in Terre Haute, where he was born, they have something. But you know, there's there's dozens of statues of these Confederate generals, and uh, it's one-sided. the The portrait of history in our public space is one-sided. It's one strand of our history. It's but it's act they act as if that's the whole thing. You know, there's no other uh, no other elements of history. You know, on the South Carolina. The grounds of the South Carolina State House in Columbia, South Carolina, they've got a whole bunch of statues of great figures of South Carolina history, John C. Calhoun, you name them. There's a kind of generic statue of black people in South Carolina history, but it's not any particular person. In fact, the only black person, and there's like 15 different monuments there, the only black person mentioned by name is Essie, the illegitimate daughter of um, Senator Strom Thurmond, She's the only black person in the history of South Carolina mentioned by name in all these monuments on the South Carolina State House. What does that tell you about their view of who counts, so to speak, in the history of of their state? So this goes back to, uh, you know, Nietzsche. This is monumental history. And monumental history is an expression of power. Who has the power to to determine how our history is visualized?
0: And that's in one of your essays that you... You say that that's a distorted past like the one taught to you when you were growing up in school in the
1: 1950s. Yeah. Where were you in school in the 1950s? Where was that being taught to you? Long Beach High School, Long Beach, Long Island, Nassau County. Nice little place to grow up. You know, I'm not complaining. I'm not singling out my teachers. They were. No, I know you're not. I'm not. not, No, they were doing the best they could. But that was the thing. That was the textbook. That was the civics book. It was anodyne. It was boring. It was celebratory all the way through. America started great and has been getting better ever since. Nothing about slavery, particularly nothing about the people I mentioned. Frederick Douglass wasn't in my high school textbook back then. You know, so it was not what happened was the 60s rolled along and suddenly you had a, the society in crisis in the streets, and this the events that I saw when I was in college in the 60s and then graduate school, those things could not have arisen out of the history that we had been taught. The history of progress, of success, of uh, freedom for everybody could not have produced the crisis that we were seeing in the streets every day. So that led to people like myself, I was a young guy then, and others trying to look into, well, where does this come from? What have we missed in our history? And that led to a tremendous, you know, efflorescence of studies of slavery, of anti-slavery, of African-American history, which tremendously expanded the scope of our history and really made it a far more interesting and complicated and accurate portrayal of the American past.
0: But you, in in another one of your essays, you're talking about the school system and Texas. This is oh, yeah. 2010. And again, according to that, the the history that's being taught in Texas schools is still, uh, has not taken advantage of any of the complications subsequent to 1960, and they're still teaching the monumental uh, goody-two-shoes that you weren't encountered in the 50s.
1: <laughs> well, Texas is a funny place, as you well know, and uh, they have a school commission uh, which uh, certifies textbooks. In other words, now, Texas is a big place. And um, you want your textbook to be used if you're a publisher in Texas, you know, that's a big market. And um, so they, this, now this, this commission, used to be like teachers, it used to be just, you know, people who know something about history. Now it's just a bunch of right wing uh, fanatics, a dentist and other who know nothing much about history, but they know what they like and what they like is to deny the separation of church and state. They like to deny the importance of slavery in the history of Texas. They like to say, well, the Confederacy and the Union were equally, you know, moral equivalents, you might say, between the nation and the Confederacy, and many other things. Uh, And they put out these um, guidelines, textbooks, to be adopted in schools in Texas have to be approved by the School Book Commission. And to do that, you've got to follow their guidelines. So I was right. There was a big controversy. Now, there was pushback. You know, there are people in Texas, plenty of them, who want their children to learn actual history, not just fake history, as the term is used nowadays. Uh, And so there was a lot of pushback, and some of those things were eventually altered. Uh, but like Thomas Jefferson was taken out because he believed in separation of church and state and students aren't supposed to hear about that in Texas. But it shows you how the study of history can be highly politicized, you know. So that's the kind of political correctness, right? Yes, but that's if, what know, I mean. They don't call it political. Correctness.
0: But yeah. is there a lot of that going on today?
1: There's a lot of controversy about textbooks. Absolutely. Uh, and but I think um I think the controversy over the Texas thing uh, led to a pullback. I think there's less pressure on textbooks now to be quite as just subservient to conservative ideology as the Texas Commission was trying to uh, make it. But ge- generally
0: speaking, is it possible to say anything broadly about the way American history is taught in the nation's uh, public schools and and
1: state universities? It's hard to to say. Uh, One thing I would say is that there isn't enough of it. That's the number one rule, uh, you know, generalization here. The teaching of history has been diminished. In New York State, where we are right now, has cut back on the amount of history that students are obligated to learn By the time they graduate from high school, other states have done the same thing. Why? Because there's so much emphasis now on the so called STEM subjects, you know, math, science, uh, technology, and there's this, you know, impulse to make history, to make uh, education a kind of vocational thing. We're, We're training people for jobs, we're training people to increase economic productivity. And it doesn't seem like history contributes very much to that. You know, studying history doesn't help you become a better engineer or design a new dating app for your iPhone. Um, And, uh, you know, so uh, the arts, literature, all these things which don't seem to have an immediate economic payoff are being uh, neglected in education all over the country. And that's a sad and serious problem. You don't want, but no matter how great people are in designing new software programs, you want them also to be citizens. You want them to be able to think for themselves. You want them to have the critical skills which the study of history uh, imparts. And so I think it's uh, most unfortunate that uh, however history is being taught, it's being taught not enough.
0: See, I consider history. I mean, you know, we have this quarterly journal, and history to me yes. encompasses art, philosophy, literature. I mean, it, it's consciousness that is collects over time, and that is our great inheritance. And, you know, the, what what we've learned. But it's, I mean, I consider a, a novel by Balzac or Dickens. Uh, as much of a history text as I do uh, <laughs> some, of the, some of the textbooks that are handed around in, in school.
1: It's part of the history of the era they're writing in. I think using novels in a history class can be done very creatively. It also runs many risks. Uh, students have enough trouble figuring out what did happen than trying to assimilate what is created by the imagination of the novelist. I'm not against it, I'm just saying it's it's tricky, um but you're right, of course, history encompasses everything that's happened in the past, and uh that includes all these uh, creative um you know creative identities etc cetera, et cetera all
0: right, what is the antidote we We have plenty of evidence of of the abuses of history. I mean we see that in the newspapers mm-hmm. every day, we see it in political speeches, we see it in our foreign policy but we don't see much of the uh, the uh, good use of history, and yeah, you're so. My question to you is: How do we teach that? I mean, what do we? How do you teach that with television?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, television, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, students' attention spans are very short now. They're not used to sitting down and reading a book. You know, um, there are great high school teachers all over this country. I I lecture a lot in high schools or in social studies conventions, and I meet very dedicated teachers who are doing their best in sometimes pretty difficult circumstances. Um, I do think also, I'm not just trying to pat myself on the back, but I do think more historians should do what I've been trying to do in this book, which is address a broader audience, you know, not just write for the academy. Important is you know scholarly work is obviously and it does the building blocks of history but i think we also have an obligation to try to bring good history to as broad an audience as possible through writing through museum exhibitions through national park sites all sorts of ways you know people encounter history all over the place not just in a classroom and uh, we should try to make sure that the history they encounter is as good as it can be. I have advised National Park Service sites in upgrading their presentation of one or another aspect of history. I've done things in museums, historical societies. Uh, the problem is the academic world doesn't really um, reward that. You know, you publish a book, you get a promotion, you get a salary increase. Uh, you make a museum exhibition uh, that doesn't register. That's that's not what they're looking for. So. Um, the reward, um, you know, system is a little askew. I think in universities from this point of view. In 1979, you
0: you have an essay called "The Televised Past," in which yeah. you're talking about even then in 1979 the the enormous uh, flood of docudrama uh, appearing all over t- on on television in the movies and, and uh, in documentary and that was 1979 and and it's it's much more of that now so um,
1: yeah there is well first of all there's a lot more channels they didn't yeah. have cable tv back then yeah um yeah i mean I, I have become i've worked in some of these i've worked with tv documentaries films i've i've become more and more skeptical of them actually as a good mode of presenting history there's just something about the medium which almost inexorably elevates the great man. You know, you think of Hollywood history. What are the movies that come to mind? Lincoln, Malcolm X, Gandhi. These are great man histories. You know, they're pretty good as movies, but they it, they eliminate mass history. They eliminate the movement history. They just give you the great man. And it's always a man. They don't have movies like that about women. And I, I think it's just inevitable that, I don't know whether it's the screen itself or what, But over the years, I found it's very, maybe the filmmaker just isn't interested in getting out to the ordinary American and what they were trying to accomplish in one point of one period or another. So I've kind of, um, how shall I put it? I've retreated from being connected with um, Hollywood history. I, I just don't trust it anymore. But
0: think of how many of our fellow citizens are learning their history That way. I mean, I remember, I mean, I'm born in 1935, and I'm I'm going to the movies in the 1940s, and my whole idea of the American West is basically made in Hollywood.
1: Yeah. Totally mythological. It's
0: utterly mythological. I mean, as I got older, I found out that, that... there was very little truth in them, there, hills, but but the uh... you,
1: you know that the West was the West was a more urbanized region than any other one in the country back then. I mean, it's amazing how many Westerners lived in cities, but you don't see that in the great uh, John Ford movies. No, no, of course people are getting it. They, most people's concept of slavery comes from Gone with the Wind or something like that, which is unfortunate. But um, I don't know. I, I it's hard to combat, and uh, I haven't seen it done very effectively. Occasionally. It's done well, but uh, I'm afraid that most Hollywood history falls into the trap I was mentioning before.
0: Last question, uh, Eric, the the subject of of slavery and racial division. I mean, are we ever going to be able to reach some kind of uh, understanding and resolution of that?
1: You know, um, we are coming up in 2019 to the 400th anniversary of 1619, when the first slaves were landed in Virginia, the first slaves in the 13 colonies. Uh, they had been slaves with the Spanish in the Southwest and everything, but the first slaves of the British colonies that would eventually rebelling become the United States. That's, four, that's 400 years ago. There was 250 years, basically, of slavery, or maybe 248 or something, 246, until the Thirteenth Amendment. We've only had 150 years since. In other words, in our history, there's been a lot more slavery than freedom in terms of number of years. And then, after slavery, you had Reconstruction, which was a great attempt to really make this a democracy, but it failed and, uh, you know, didn't didn't succeed in guaranteeing the rights of the former slaves. And then you was followed by another century: crow, segregation, lynching, you name it. So, there's a long Long history that has to be overcome, you know. I'm not surprised that racial tension still is very evident in this society. Uh, it is in any society that had slavery, I don't care where you look. And, the, and you know, this is not to say that there hasn't been a lot of progress in the last 50 years. The civil rights movement did achieve a great deal. It didn't achieve enough, but it achieved a great deal. But there's still a long way to go. But now, of course, it's all complicated because uh, we're not, we can't just talk about black and white. The race question in the United States is Hispanics and Asians and South Asians and immigrants from all over the place. And um, you know, black and white doesn't quite capture the complexity of American society today. So we need new paradigms to kind of think through what race is and what racial division and what racial inequality is in America of 2017. But one of, one of the points I wanna make is, history does not tell us what to do. You can learn all you can about, let's say, the history of immigration policy, and all the debates in our history about, yes, we should have him, no, we shouldn't have immigrants, let's keep him out, no, let's let him in. It's important to know all that, but it doesn't tell you what immigration policy should be today. That's a political question of the moment, but it can be well-informed by historical knowledge, and uh, too often it isn't.
0: What history can teach us is that the only thing we can change is
1: the past. <laughs> uh, I, I, no, I wouldn't tell people that. I believe we can change the future, and uh, knowing knowing the past may help us do that. Um, I think it was, you know, someone said that in the old Soviet Union, right? Uh, the uh, The future is fixed. It's only the past that can be changed all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, All right. Well, listen, Eric, it's a wonderful and very timely collection of essays, and I appreciate your taking the time to talk to us.
1: Pleasure to talk to you as always, Lewis.
0: I've been speaking with the historian Eric Foner about his book of essays, Battles for Freedom. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org podcast for more details.